Warning, this podcast episode may contain explicit content, including swearing, discussion of sexual violence and rape, and other adult content. Welcome to Crow Club, a Shadow and Bone and Grishaverse podcast. If you have been listening to us, you know that what you can expect from us is spoilers. Lots of spoilers. It's what we do. This whole thing doesn't work without spoilers. But this is actually a different sort of episode than we have ever done before. My name is JJ. I'm Kat. And I'm Anjali. Today, we are going to be discussing Demon in the Wood, the graphic novel. There will be primarily spoilers for that and the previously published text version non-graphic novel version of Demon in the Wood. We're also going to get into some other things, but this is primarily going to be centered around that. I am so excited to have this discussion with you two. This was fun to read, and, you know, I think what listeners can expect from this is a lot of conspiracy theories. We all have the copies in front of us, so we encourage you, follow along. We'll shout out page numbers occasionally, and that's what we're going to do today. Let's start with What did you think of the graphic novel overall? Thoughts, impressions? I thought it was a really interesting way to look at the story. For the most part, I think a lot of things are the same overall plot-wise, but it was really interesting for me to see the depiction of like the Darkling's face or Bagra's face at different points. And it it kind of hits you in a way that the Darkling's perspective in the short story does not. I think this is like a very faithful retelling for the most part. However, it adds this very large kind of detour that ends up exploring a lot about Annika and her sister which I thought was a very interesting way to structure this graphic novel. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think I'm biased because I actually love this type of format. I grew up reading a lot of manga, so love graphic novels, have a lot of experience reading them. I am not extensively versed in this type of media. I've read very little graphic novels. I both tend to not love the format, and when I read them, I tend to be easily confused. I think that may be due to the fact that I'm just not very accustomed to the media type. So there were definitely some places in here where I was a little bit confused. I went back and read the text, and it made a little bit more sense to me afterwards. The other thing about the graphic novel is that it added a new dimension to the textual, like to the story itself, in that, like Angela was saying, you can see the expressions, but also things like we got to see what shadow summoning looked like. Yeah. Right? In a, we, you know, we've gotten to see that in the Netflix show, but that's obviously like one version. So getting to see another version, getting to see the cut, like there are a bunch of things that we've actually not seen much of and were only described in words before. So that was like a fun new angle that I'm also excited to get into. Absolutely. So one interesting thing about this graphic novel is that it starts with information about Grisha. It starts with a little Fjordan Rafkin kid being told about Grisha and wanting to join the Druskel, the Grisha hunters in Fjorda. And one of the things that I thought was interesting, they're mentioned as new witch hunters. The Druskel are considered to be new right around the time that Alex is a, that Alexander, the Darkling, who I obviously call Alex because we are on a nickname basis, but the time that he is a teenager. And I think that leaves 
open the possibility for a lot of things, including potentially Bagra being the impetus for the Druskel being started. Did she do something that increased the fear of the Fjordans and kicked this off? I love that theory. I could totally see Bagra doing something catastrophic. (laughs) And causing the Puritans to sort of organize. We see her in this novel having destroyed an entire forest with the cut for seemingly practice. It seems like it's part of a practice show montage. Off. Yeah, whatever it is. And so I'm like, if that's what she does for practice. I think also in the short story itself, the textual version, when Enika is talking about the Druskel's horses, Alexander thinks to himself... There's some things I can't tell, but it seems safe enough to tell her about the horses. And that kind of implies that he does know a lot about the Driscoll, maybe in their battle tactics. Even though he doesn't speak Fjordan very well, clearly something happened where he learned a lot about them. And he's only 13 in the time of that story. I do think the fact that they have bred horses to deal specifically with Grisha, and that seems to be a Driscoll-specific thing, makes this seem not like the Driscoll are that new. It makes it seem like they must have been around for longer if they've bred horses specifically to battle Grisha. It's a it, very uh, kind of a long Yeah, I mean, these are horses, pursuit. not rabbits or whatever. Mm-hmm. I do think it is weird that the setup for Bagra wanting to stay with this group until the spring is that she can learn about how they fight the Druskel because Mm -hmm. the baby Darkling seems to know quite a bit about the Druskel and more than the other children even who have been in skirmishes with them. I guess I find it a little hard to believe that Bagra is going around trying to learn from groups of Grisha, but I also am a big fan of the mentality of like staying humble and you can always learn something from someone. So maybe she keeps that too, but it doesn't seem particularly Bagra-like to me. Is it possible that she's trying to gather more data about them and thinks that by staying with a Grisha camp, the chances of encounters like is going up significantly. So she'll learn about them much faster than if she and the Darkling are just bouncing around different countries for the next 10 years. Oh, so she's not trying to learn how they fight them. She's looking for a fight. Oh, I like that. It's dark, but that's Bagra. So Another thing is the Risha hereditability aspect that we've touched on and the novel, I think, really give another angle to whether or not Grisha power is inherited, right? Whereas at the little palace, we see pretty much orphans or people who were ripped from their families as children at the very least, but mostly Mm -hmm. orphans who are Grisha. And we've talked about how a little bit strange that is. But here we see these small towns of Grisha that are in families. And in fact, they refer to a child of one of these families who is Otkazatsia as an Otkazatsia mistake, right? So that this is not common that two Grisha, mm-hmm. and we know both her parents are Grisha, would have a child who was not Otkazatsia. Nor do we see in this, although of course there aren't that many characters, it's a short story, whatever, but we don't see roving bands of children either. There's also the assumption that Sylvie makes about the Darkling that because Bagra has that like darkness power that she thinks he has it too. There's that like heritability assumption that a small child has. And for the amplifiers as well. Right. Bagra says, if you don't value your own life, show some concern for mine. 
So on the assumption mm-hmm. that if people found out he was an amplifier, they would believe that she was as well. We see some examples like Zoya, where neither of her parent, as parents, as far as we know, had any Grisha abilities. So there, And Nina, presumably there's two origin stories to Nina, but neither of them suggests that one of her parents was Grisha. And we know that they send out examiners and not yeah. just to orphanages. Yeah. Presumably they believe that it is frequent enough that they should test every kid, even if the kid's parents are Utkazatsia. But also this story suggests that it is rare for an Utkazatsia kid to be born to Grisha. The other thing Lev says, he's implying that the weakness in Grisha power is like a line that can run through families, like power can degrade over time, where he's saying, oh, you're weak just like your father. And it kind of implies that's also why Sylvie has no power as well. That's a good point. So that brings up the idea that potentially maybe a Grisha examiner would Mm. see Sylvie as Grisha somehow, right? If they're an amplifier and are able to bring something out from her, but that her Grisha powers might be so diluted that it would not be apparent to her or anyone else. What a missed opportunity. Like, what if the Darkling had grabbed her hand instead of Annika's? Yeah, I never even considered that before. I think about that every time I read this book. (gasps) Really? Oh, man. Well, I guess that's the fan fiction that we write. It's like the third version of this story (laughs) where he grabs her hand to save her and then she goes back and destroys the town. So one thought of when I read it in the text, but where it seemed more prominent in the graphic novel is page 45 for those following along. Bagra brushes his hair for two panels and says, you read the flow of power the way others chart tides. I thought this was interesting because there is a group of Grisha called Tidemakers. And this just made me wonder if she is talking about more than just being a keen observer. If there is something larger going on here and you know not telepathy i you know i think he's able to see the conclusion you know that what he's able to do to deduce from them the way this was done in the graphic novel just made me pause there a little bit and then at the bottom of page 45 you see alex looking just as smug as you would ever (laughs) see a person looking although apparently in the text he like rolls his eyes I think if you took this statement out of context, you could see Bagra almost saying something about his ability as an amplifier in that, you know, tide makers affect the tides. He can read power or affect power that flows through him when he touches somebody. I was thinking about it, actually, when you were talking about the connection to tide makers, tide makers aren't just reading the tides, they are affecting it, like Anjali was saying. I was wondering if she was suggesting that she thought he's like able to like harness power in a way that like tide makers can. And when I'm talking about power, I don't mean like shadow summoning. I mean like authority and building up his like leadership skills. Like this will help you become, you know, like a leader by reading the people around you. But also you can you have the ability to actually change things through your ability to like not just like read, but then the way that people react to you is similar to how Tidemakers aren't just like predicting what's going to happen, but they are like actively changing it. Yeah. And I don't know, I don't know how much of this was kind of my imagination after having had that thought, but the graphic novel to me, it felt less clear 
that Bagra was asking him questions she already knew the answers to. And in the text, I very much felt like she was like giving him a quiz. There are two panels on page 44 where Bagra actually looks startled and surprised by what he says. And we definitely don't get that in the textual short story, at least from the Darkling's perspective, that she's taken aback by something he said in the same way. Totally, yes. I also just love the image of (laughs) him like lying on this bed of hay, I guess, just like chatting with Bagra. Because, you know, we see them in Shadow and Bone and they're like so ancient and so jaded. And here he's just like a little teenager like splaying himself across the hay and i think it's interesting that you mentioned that in the text version all we hear is that he rolls his eyes in response to this like real praise from her but in the graphic novel we actually see him like kind he's of like, smiling slightly to himself and it's in yeah he's preening he's definitely happy to hear this and it, i think it adds this another layer or dimension to their relationship that i did not get from the short story. Totally. Should we move on to the things that are different in the graphic novel version? Let's do it. Might be fun to start with Bagra. I know that on this podcast, we're like weirdly big fans of Bagra compared to probably the rest of the fandom, but let's start with her. I don't care if it's called Demon in the Wood. We're starting with Bagra in the Wood. I mean, one of the things that is different here is Bagra's interaction with the elders, right? There are some things that are the same, right? You know, the kind of like their skepticism, whatever. But they're having this discussion about hunting an amplifier, which is certainly an awkward way (laughs) for the two of them to join a group. And then she uses the cut to cut one of their walking sticks. That's not super cool. But it's not some big display. This is page 34, 35. And we actually get to see this visualization of the cut. And I just re-listened to some of our old episodes. And so I know we have spent time hypothesizing about what does the cut actually look like when the Darkling and Bagra use it. And it's sort of neat to see here that it looks like a tendril of darkness. It doesn't look that different from the depiction of their powers in other places in this graphic novel. And here, you know, it's pretty small. She's using it to cut this stick. Why? I I was surprised that she, okay, there, there were things. I was surprised that she revealed that much. And then I was surprised that, that they don't apparently know that much about the cut, right? They say, was that the cut? And then they say abomination, and it is not clear if they are talking about her powers. It is not clear if they are talking about the cut. Discuss. Oh my god, there's so much in that scene. I'm like, where'd even start from there? Uh, Yeah. Uh, Okay, first let's just talk about Bagra, um, because I think this is like the smallest part of this conversation. I thought it was hilarious that she was clearly just so pissed about the misogyny being thrown her way by this group of <laughs> elders that she essentially just showboats and is like, well, I'm just going to do this completely unnecessary display of power. And then she dusts off her nails afterwards <laughs> and shines them. And it's so, so casual. It's so petty. And I love that. It is petty because like JJ mentioned, it's someone's cane. Yeah, it's a mobility aid. But also, you know, there is the misogyny angle, which is pretty clear, I think, in the text and the the graphic novel. But there's also, and I think this felt more clear to me in the text, she's really annoyed that that they call themselves elders. And I got the sense that that's because she's way older than them. 
Where, you know, we don't actually know how old Bagra is here. My mm-hmm. hypothesis is she's several hundred years old. But yeah, she's like, they like call themselves elders or whatever. And I think she's also just yeah. over over but that. It's it's a it's a kind of like sass specific to the graphic novel version because I think in the textual version, I mean they specifically say like you don't just use the cut anytime. It's like, you know, for for special occasions. And this was not a special occasion. This was her just whipping it out. So there's also, you know, her like whipping out the cut here. Like I guess there are the questions of why would the cut only be used on special occasions? I think the fact that she used it to cut someone's walking yes. stick while he's mm-hmm. holding it shows the amount mm-hmm. of control that she has, right? That That's a lot of control to know that she was not going to kill this guy and then get them kicked out before, you know, they were even officially welcomed in. And also the fact that these Grisha seem to vaguely recognize the cut. They seem to have heard heard about it but never seen it one of them looks like kind of startled but they definitely don't look like they've never seen or are like complete like didn't know this exists yeah so let's talk about the the cuts place in the universe which i think is the most fascinating part of its inclusion here we have talked about in previous episodes, how the Darkling uses the cut. Bagra obviously knows how to use the cut, and Alina eventually knows how to use the cut. But those are the only people we've ever seen use the cut, and it sort of made us... Or think about using the cut. Yes, or think about using it, yes. And it made us wonder, is the cut only something that a special type of Grisha can do? Or is it just someone that has extraordinary amounts of power? So the fact that they've heard of it, but like are kind of clearly shocked slash weirded out by Bagra's darkness powers makes me think that it's not exclusive to, to Bagra. But where would it have come up before? Ilya's writings. Yes, yes. Because the next word they say is abomination. Yep. And where we hear abomination is in reference to Merzost. Is the cut Merzost? We we don't, we are not led to believe that by any stretch of the imagination in the original Shadow and Bone. Bagra is pretty against Merzost by the time of the original trilogy. And yet she teaches Alina about the cut and encourages her to do it mm. and encourages her to be more powerful and precise when she does it. Is, you know, this is the sort of thing where I'm like, is... Is her power the abomination? We, we, Anjali, you have also yes. hypothesized that the shadow summoning is itself Merzost. And, you know, I think this is, you know, potentially a little bit of evidence towards something like that, or at least that other Grisha might believe that to be the case. In the training montage or whatever, where we see Bagra has raised a whole forest with the cut, and we see... Alexander standing next to a tree where he's made a few tiny little nicks on it with the cut. And that's very different than in the text where he has never been able to successfully use the cut. And, you know, what I, what I think is interesting in the graphic novel, both with those tiny little nicks and with Bagra's really precise control of this very small version of the cut, is that this is different from kind of what we see in the Shadow and Bone trilogy where cuts are these huge, big, dramatic things, we never see a small cut. 
even when Alina does her first one, it's she cuts the skiff in half. I mean, that's, you know, there we never see a small one. It, it kind of ranges from skiff to taking the top off a mountain. This is, this is interesting because Bagra has used the cut on this forest and we see darkness billowing out of the tree trunk. Super cool visual. It's like it's smoking, but the trunks where her power is not lingering do not appear burned or charred in any way. Which is also interesting because I do get the impression that with Alina, they might. If Alina were cutting down a tree, with a capital C cutting down a tree, I I could believe that the tree trunk might be charred or singed in some way. And we don't see that here. I think this is another fun part of like the graphic novel format to me, but just two pages later on 91, back in present time, he's chopping wood and it looks it, yeah, I think it's like really like that um, visual kind of like moving from like the past to the present, but giving you a little bit of like a almost like an Easter egg for the reader for why he might be thinking about that now too, or like dwelling. Yeah, I thought it was like a really interesting way to connect those scenes. Continuing on the Bagra thread, one thing that really struck me as I was reading the graphic novel is: Do we actually believe Bagra knows and/or remembers who the Darkling's father is? You know, I think Bagra is very wily and smart, and I do not think she would forget, no matter how old she was, who the Darkling's father was. I mean, it's possible that she has had multiple paramours, but I see her as being targeted and selective about who she would choose to have a child with. Like Ula's father? (laughs) Maybe. Mer people, mer people in this universe are clearly very powerful and they have a very interesting system of magic that is very different than the Grisha magic. And I think she was probably pretty intentional. Now, why she abandoned her child, I don't totally understand. But in choosing to sleep with Ola's father, I think it was definitely an intentional choice. It really makes me wonder the way she explains it to him in the graphic novel. She's being extremely evasive about it. And is it just because she doesn't want him going off looking for him? Or is there something else going on? Well, I I do think part of what she does is she really, by moving them around so much, she solidifies herself as the only person he can count on and like very much emphasizes that. Like if anyone knows the secret, right? Like I'm the only one that's safe. That's true. She really isolates him. And obviously Demon in the Wood is all about him feeling isolated and lonely. But good point, fair point that... She possibly did the exact same thing with his father from birth or even earlier. While we're talking about this conversation that Bagra does have about the Darkling's father, I think it's fascinating slash extremely curious that the way that this was chosen or the panels they chose to illustrate this was were the stag sort of appearing in the forest near them. And, you know, it's on pages nine and 10 and her sort of conversation about his father disappearing in a blink of an eye and him outliving him are superimposed on shots of the stag dashing away. And the stag is, to be clear, it's Morozova's stag. And it could just be a fun wink to people that have read further in the story to say, oh, look, by coincidence, they were in that same region that the stag was found in later, and it was actually just feet from them. Or it could be saying something more cryptic or symbolic. 
Like Bagra doesn't <laughs> just have children with. Yes, I believe I originally said the graphic novel seems to be implying that the Darkling's father is the stag, which is definitely a way of reading it. But it also, I feel, is maybe implying something just about her choosing the Darkling's father, maybe for a reason based on Morozova's theories, using this symbol of Morozova, her, her father, to juxtapose that with her talking about the Darkling's father might mean that she had a plan. She doesn't want to talk about it, but she had a plan. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that they, like you said, chose to show the stag here in the background while they're having this conversation about the world not being safe for Grisha. Because as a reader of the books, every time the stag appears now, it really makes me think of Morozova. And I feel like because of that, in the graphic novel, it almost feels like it's a little piece of him, like a little piece of his soul there because they're having a conversation about something that like matters deeply to them or like for whatever reason, it feels like there's a shadow of her father appearing there at that meaningful conversation point. Hmm. Or it could be the Darkling's father. He's <laughs> just following him around, <laughs> keeping an eye on his dashes gun. away. Yeah, when she's like, he'll, he'll be dead and it's like dashing off. It's so, such a choice. I think, I, yeah, I like laughed out loud when I saw that message from Anjali because I immediately knew what she was talking about and was like, that's an amazing yeah. connection. Okay, so continuing through the story, we we see him blinding Lev and Lev's friends when they're trying to attack Annika and Sylvie. And in the text, it's described as darkness is swirling around their heads but on page 77 what we see looks to me like nothing so much as how i imagined bagra's eyes looking the second two books of the series you know she's described as having this kind of like darkness in her eye sockets and this is very much that it's certainly not swirling around their heads you know in some of these like distinct blobs of darkness coming out of each of their, you know, trailing off from each of their eyes. And I thought that was an interesting sort of difference. And I wondered if it was inspired by what Bagra was described as looking like in in those books, or if this was perhaps just easier to draw than having to blot out their whole heads. I'm so curious to see if how they're going to depict Bagra losing her like vision in the Netflix show. Are they going to stay true to that? Are they going like, are they just going to put like patches or like something over her eyes? Theory, they're going to chicken out and not do it. Okay, so now let's get into this bear plot. Yeah, it's quite the detour from the original book where the bear and hunting and amplifier was not mentioned at all. So my theory around the bear plot is twofold. One, I think they wanted to introduce the amplifier concept a little bit more and earlier in the story so that people who are were less familiar or haven't thought about it as much can kind of understand the import of what's going on here. And then secondly, it was to also build out Annika and Sylvie as more like fully fleshed out characters who have other things going on and you understand their like motivations and what's driving them a little bit more so that in the big plot twist when Alexander kills Annika you feel a little bit more invested in that decision and understand oh, like that must have been really tough for him and that was it has more of an emotional pull 
that particular part in the story. Yeah. yeah, it definitely adds a little bit of a layer to this turning point in the Darkling's life where he makes his first kill. It was probably not easy for him. Sort of maybe a descent into evil or darkness that shows up in him, you know, slaughtering a whole town a century or two later. But it's interesting because they kind of add this layering and complexity to Annika. I feel like it makes her this more multidimensional character and she's essentially like a a nothing character who doesn't really matter in this world. So it's kind of an interesting choice to make because on on one hand, I think it 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 adds where it makes her betrayal of the darkling worse. Because, you know, in the first book, yeah, he maybe helped Sylvie a little bit and she should be grateful. In the graphic novel, he saves Sylvie's life three times. And so it's a huge deal to kill someone and to wear their bones who's done that for you. That's huge. On the other hand, it's also bothers to show us how desperate she was. Because now that Sylvie came back and bragged about Annika's powers and she's supposed to demonstrate them for everyone soon. She's probably backed into a corner where she has to show everyone her powers and she's going to have to do it for the rest of her life. She can't keep holding his hand so she's basically just going to take his bones. And so I think it makes her this interesting character that has this morally gray decision to make. It's so puzzling that they bothered to do that for this very short-lived character. On the same thread, it really builds out Sylvie as a character. Then she's gone forever, right? She's out Katsatsia, not in like Runa Rising or like any of the future books at all. Like she's long gone by then. But Towards the end of the book, maybe someone can help me with the page number. When they're separating their parting ways, the backwards look she gives the Darkling chills. I'm like, she is not going to forget him. She knows something is up and she doesn't trust his story at all. Page 192. Yeah, you, you, Kat, you, you called this the silver... Sylvie villain origins. Right? Like, that's what it reads like, is she has this big sister who's, like, devoted to her and, like, really upset when the Darkling hides her in shadows and stuff, and she's super excited about it, thinks he's great and their new friend, and then he's the one who kills this beloved older sister. Like, in any other story, that would be the beginning of her descent into villainhood. Yeah. And I think if that were true, this would be an amazing story. And I would totally agree with how they've built everything up. So unless, you know, Lee is planning to drop another story on us, it seems like it's misallocated. Wait, wait, wait. What about total crazy conspiracy theory for you two? What if Sylvie is somehow the foremother of Mal in some way? Since we know nothing about Mal. I was thinking that too. You know, the the thing that I thought this side plot did is it makes the Darkling look less careless. Hmm. And it makes him and Bagra look a lot more stupid. So in the in the text, he's careless because he just like offers his hand to help Annika stand up and like that's pretty careless if you're an amplifier. Here he's he's offering her his hand because, you know, it's saving her life and her sister's life. And that's that's a big deal. And you know, maybe that's worth revealing your amplifier status over. However, she 
has already demonstrated that she is willing to kill something to get an amplifier. I know that it does not necessarily translate to she'd be willing to kill her Grisha, but he has seen her willing to kill, willing to put herself in serious danger, right? Hunting a bear on her own. That's a big deal. And then she is able to summon all of this power, which is extremely out of character, right? This Sylvie thinks it's incredible. She thinks it's incredible. Sylvie goes back and tells everyone about it. Bagra hears this description and does not yank him out of there. She does not make them immediately leave. And she very clearly should have, unless she's like really delusional about this for some reason. Like this is the sort of thing where they both should have known that their cover was blown. Even if those Grisha, Annika, who he specifically touched, had not specifically realized it. And also, you know, I I brought this up, but, um, you know, in Shadow and Bone, Bagra and the Darkling don't make the connection that there is an amplifier with Alina on the skiff and that that's how she's able to kind of pour out all of this incredible power that she's not able to summon anything similar to. And, you know, we had a debate of did that have to be an amplifier? Did it not? But this seems very similar in a a situation where they should have known. Yeah, it's very different from the textual version because in that version, the Darkling wonders, oh, I should probably tell my mom that Annika knows. In this version, it's very clear that Bagra knows, not only because it's just obvious, but because she keeps shooting him these glares over dinner. But then (laughs) apparently after dinner, he's able to like wait till she falls asleep and go swimming. He isn't just interrogated and like roasted by his mother being like, what is wrong with you? We're going to have to leave. But may I say that Bagra and the Darkling are stupid to me in both versions of the story because it's not like they're in a sunny climate just wear gloves all the time it's snowing why risk touching anybody kind of dark theory but is it possible bagra did know and she thought this would be an excellent learning experience for him to like further isolate him from this like desire to form friendships Yeah, it almost makes me wonder if the entire staying with the Grisha camp was a setup for her because she knew something like this would happen. Like you said, she knows how desperate he is for connection. Like she actually, at least in the graphic novel, I don't remember in the book now, like ribs him about it. Like, oh, you'd be okay staying here, you know? Like, seems like you really want to stay. You're really excited about this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's dark, but it makes me really wonder if she's like, you know what? He's got to learn now why we stay away, why we don't get close to anyone but each other. And this was like a safe place for her to do it because she's clearly the most powerful one there. If she had to turn on these other Grisha, if like he failed to defend himself, like I think she would have stepped in. But I think it could be her setting him up to isolate himself further and like to decide to do it instead of just be like resentfully pulled along by her into this isolation. Well, yeah, so we do see what I think is interesting, and it did not read this way to me in the text, but definitely in the graphic novel, page 179 and 180, where he has just used the cut to kill these two Grisha children. Annika is not quite dead, and she says, help me, please, Eric. And we see him kind of looking up, and then on page 180, he looks so cold, so furious, and he says, 
That's not my name. To me, this is the first glimpse we actually get of the Darkling. This is like the man that he will become. And I think we really see the the change that this brought in him. And whether, you know, to your point, Kat, that, <laughs> you know, this is something that Bagra was hoping would, would happen here, that she thought maybe he was just like killing some other children or whatever. But, you know, when I went back and reread the story, the that's not my name mm-hmm. line didn't land like this at all. There was nothing that made me think the Darkling was saying that. Like it could be him just, you know, like re- almost like sadly replying. That's how I think I read it back yeah. then. And here, <laughs> oof, it's not that. Okay, so there is one more thing in this graphic novel, probably more than one more thing. And, you know, I don't know that this kind of reaches um, Stag as the Darkling's father conspiracy theory level. But page 48 and 49, Bagra at the top of page 48, she's about to go out and meet the elders. From her bag, she pulls out and puts on this ring. With that same hand, she points to Alex's heart, right? She says, your name, your true name is written here. And then there are two panels of her finger. It's her left hand finger with the ring pointing to his heart. So she has this ring on her finger. It's dark it seems to have some small stone and in in the original text it says bagra puts on a garnet ring which is a very chill reference and certainly not three panels of illustration pointing to his heart with the ring cat was questioning how the grisha kefta look on the last page and then i noticed that alexander is wearing this ring on the very last panel it is on his right index finger he's wearing that and that's all we get about it like it's never mentioned anywhere else there's never any backstory about it there's no future references to it in the latest duology right except that he does wear a ring in, in the television show he does not wear a ring in in the books but in the television show we see him wearing a ring it is certainly a heavy ring it is a thick ring he's wearing it on his pinky finger instead of his index finger i certainly believe that it could be the same ring that's kind of you know as he's grown if this like scrawny 13 year old is growing into ben barnes it probably doesn't still fit his index finger as as he grows let's talk about why we think the ring is important because it's not just like oh bagra has this cool fashion accessory i mean i would talk about that on a podcast but i don't know if you guys would care so much about that i think the context in which it's presented is very interesting it seems very intentional they've just arrived at the camp they've already met with the elders and as they're talking in the tent bagra goes and fetches this ring out of her pack And right as she's about to leave, she puts it on her finger very intentionally and goes off to meet the elders. She's putting on this ring for this meeting. Why? She didn't wear it to the camp to meet everybody. It seems like it might be imparting authority, but maybe it's also imparting some sort of power. When she traces Alex's name when pointing to his heart, you can see an A appear on his chest, which could just be the impression of her fingers, but it also could imply that there's something magical about that ring and what she does with it. Yes, I think there are two possibilities here. One is certainly the like sort of amulet possibility. We don't see in the rest of the Grishaverse any objects like this imparting Mm -hmm. authority other than 
amplifier bones. The fact that she puts it on, like if it is not for protection, like it seemed a little bit like when she's about to be separated from her belongings for the first time, this is what she doesn't want to get stolen. She doesn't want to like lose this ring. And, you know, if it's not an amulet, if it doesn't have powers, then that feels sentimental. It doesn't look like the Lansoff Emerald on her finger. People are not necessarily going to be trying to steal it. It, Yes, yeah. So she may be keeping this just out of sentimentality. We don't get a real close-up of it in a way that I think indicates it's not the same ring indicated in the text. So garnets are not mentioned at all in the original Shadow and Bone trilogy. They're only mentioned as like a metaphor in the Six of Crows duology. But garnets are mentioned twice in the King of Scars duology. And each time garnets are mentioned in the King of Scars duology, it's in connection with Shuhan. Either the warrior's uniforms or there's a temple with garnet columns. And so then we're like, well, is this ring somehow connected to Shuhan? And of course, you know, where I'm going to go with this, this is a ring that she's sentimental enough about that she's keeping it. And then she passes it on to her son, who in the Shadow and Bone television show is wearing, I think, a refashioned version of it because that's like 500, 600 years later. He's even like attached a little claw to it. And, you know, the only thing that I'm seeing that has that kind of sentimentality for both of them is like, this is a ring from his dad. And, you know, we know that the Darkling can pass a shoe. I'm not necessarily saying his dad issue, but it's certainly something that seems to be very important to both of mm-hmm. them over extremely long periods of time. Symbolically, garnets are seen as gemstones representing loyalty, passion, friendship. It fits in line with the love token. It's one of the few gemstones mentioned in the series. It seems like it might have some symbolic meaning. It would make sense as a token from the Darkling's father, despite the fact that Bagra does not, in <laughs> at least in what she says, appear to place that much importance on Alexander's father. But we also know that Bagra is a big liar. I am 50-50. Like, I think it could be some sort of ring of power in some ways, especially because the Darkling is so attached to it. By the time we meet him in the original series and he's wearing it, the power balance between Bagra and the Darkling has shifted quite a bit, where Alexander seems like the overwhelmingly strong one and Bagra is no longer as strong. And that could be an age thing, but it could also be something else. The Darkling does not strike me as someone very sentimental, especially about a father he never met. So I think that's the best evidence I have that there's something else going on with the ring. Like It's just hard for me to believe that he's keeping this ring for hundreds of years, especially when his mom is still around. Like Maybe it'd be one thing if Bagra were gone and he had that ring at that point. I could see him doing that. I think he actually is very fond of Bagra no matter what he's done to her by the end of the books but other than that why would a what's the circumstances in which he got it from her like did he take it like you said he is the dominant one by the time we first meet them in the beginning of the gray shivers in the first trilogy or did she give it to him and if she gave it to him what were the circumstances like what was the setup what was the situation where she was like this is the moment where i'm giving you this ring and why i think another sentimentality theory besides just from the Darkling's father, is it possible it's something from her mother or like Ilya himself? Like, is it a family heirloom? 
Was it the swan breaker's <laughs> ring that she stole? We always have to bring her in like once per episode, right? Well, the swan breaker, who is Bagra's sister, would have been extremely young. Unless it was their mother's ring, like from the mother's side, and she gave it to the little sister because she loved her more, in Bagra's mind at least. And that w- I could see Bagra pettily taking that from her. Well, to to be fair, I think this is a very wide band or the ring has a very wide band and a smaller stone. To me, it looked like a male ring. It would fit in with it being Ilya's ring. Yeah, I like I like the theory that it's Ilya's. Again, as like a kind of meta statement, I think the reason we're talking about this at length is that Lee Bardugo has dropped us a lot of information about how Grisha powers work and certainly the backstory of the... Darkling and Bagra, but she clearly hasn't told us everything. And I think there's some indications in interviews she's given and and things that she's written that there are stories about, you know, what happened to Morosova, like what what's going on with the Swanbreaker, maybe the origin story of Alina's power and how it's maybe related to how the Darkling and Bagra's powers worked. And we've come up with all sorts of crazy theories trying to understand the mechanics of their various niche Grisha powers or not Grisha powers, as it were. And so I think there's more that Lee knows. And dedicating three panels to this ring, which was mentioned in a throwaway sentence in the original Bring it book, to the show. maybe seems like... Yes, and and reached into the show, it has to be intentional. And I think we're kind of hoping um, that it connects to that hidden story. I still, I'm just going to say again, I I would love Lee Bardugo to write a story about Bagra and her sister. Lee Bardugo and or editors, we are sure you're listening to this podcast. (laughs) Yes. So please. (laughs) Well, I hope that felt like enough conspiracy theory around this relatively short story (laughs) (laughs) short story that we've like managed to talk your ears off Mm -hmm. about instead of our typical kiss marry kill though could be fun to talk about some of the funny quirks of a graphic novel version like how in the introduction of this book they mention three orders of grisha and just varies like glaringly leave out the material yes that was poor little forgotten order do they not know they exist at that point or like they're just so not scared of them they're never involved in like war and whatever that they're not even worth mentioning i also thought it was funny this is in the text version of the story as well but it stood out more to me in the graphic novel how the darkling is afraid of the dark i don't know what form of irony that is but it just it was very amusing i think similarly the way that his inner thoughts are visually represented in the graphic novel as what looked like some in shadows was a super interesting choice to me. Yeah, I love that. So, Anjali, I think we really should close this out with, we know Alexander likes sweets a lot. And when he has a birthday and Bagra goes all out on his birthday cake, what does he get? I would see him having a black cocoa or a black sesame cake that has rum-soaked fruit in it that is lit on fire. I think that's what Bagra would do for his birthday cake. She likes being a showman sometimes, and it's sweet, 
and it's a little bit not suitable for children, which again seems like a choice Bagra would make. That's what I'm going to go with. I could also see, especially if it were you making this cake, doing one with like black cocoa or black sesame, something dark on the outside, and then cutting into it, there being the rainbow cake. <laughs> the <inside>. colors <laughs> hidden in the darkness, or the colors you can only see yeah. in the darkness. Yes. It's a cake I would make for the darkling. It's not necessarily the cake that Bagra would make for the darkling. All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed us this episode. If you guys have any thoughts, feedback, ideas, feel free to drop us a line at crowclubpod at gmail.com.